we turn now to God's head and reflect it on. If you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 1. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be in Luke 1, and then at Christmas Eve and the day or, or weeks after in Luke chapter 2. We begin in verse 5 of Luke chapter 1. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. <clears throat> in the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right hand, right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, I've always been somebody who has loved Christmas and the Christmas season. And if I think about it, a lot of it, especially growing up, had to do with I, I love Christmas lights. In certain Christmas movies, for me as a little kid, it was mostly the cartoons like Charlie Brown's Christmas or Mickey's Christmas Carol. But it was also the food, the cookies, the, the distinct foods that were a part of it and time with extended family. I loved being around my aunts and uncles and cousins. And of course, the best part as a kid was Christmas presents. I mean, I wanted nothing more than to wake up very, very early on Christmas morning, make sure my sister was awakened and get downstairs as early as I possibly could. 
On Christmas Eve, we went to my aunt's house and it wasn't a surprise because as you enter the house, all the presents were under the tree for all the aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents. And I would find the ones that had my name on them. It was fantastic. Regardless of what was inside, it was the excitement of it all. And I think some of that carries over with us as we get older. And we have other things that we bring in, these other traditions, going to certain concerts or certain places with your family or dinners with friends, things that you do every year, the parts that you enjoy, the movies that you love, the foods you want to bake and eat. But this Christmas, of course, is going to be different. The COVID-19 pandemic has changed things. Most of you experienced that this Thanksgiving. And the, the challenge is when something is different and dissonant, it can be very disappointing. And we feel that lack of satisfaction in the things that we want to be there, either because we can't do them at all or the versions that we do, the dinners, the celebrations are done very differently and they don't feel right. And I think that's why this Advent in particular is set up for us to direct our attentions to God in a way that deepens our understanding of what God is doing in the world, even in the midst of a time like this. You know, Advent wasn't something I knew much about when I was growing up. I was really more focused on Christmas and presents, and then I guess cookies as well. But as I've grown in my faith into adulthood, I began to understand that there's a season that leads up to Christmas that's not meant to be just a shopping season. Advent is the four Sundays that precede the Christmas season. And in the church liturgical calendar, it is the beginning of a new year. Advent is actually awaiting the arrival of God as King, awaiting the arrival of Christ. And the awaiting is actually not for Christmas morning. It's for Christ to come again, to right all wrongs, to heal the nations, to bring his presence to bear on this earth restoring creation, resurrecting the dead, and establishing his eternal kingdom. That's what Advent is about. And I think, you know, it's hard because it kind of gets lumped in with the Christmas season, but I think there's a way to enjoy and point towards both that gets you deeper into a longing for God and what he has in store for you this season. So one of the things I think you can do as you think about this Advent is maybe differently than you have, or maybe you always do this, is take some time to prepare. Prepare your decorations, whatever orients your heart towards the things of God, the joys, the beauties. We did that even just getting some of these things set up earlier this week. Preparing a room, prepare your own room, prepare yourself, and have a plan. Have a plan for what you would like to do. And one of the things I would you know, I've found is that in the midst of a plan, this is an opportunity to make some sacrifices and some choices. So some things you normally do in a daily rhythm, maybe replace those with a devotional or a walk and listening to music, taking time to think and pray and listen and try to be present this Advent season. I think that's one of the hardest things is most of the Christmas season as a kid was anticipating presence on Christmas day. But I think one of the invitations that God would have for us is to just be present in the moment, in each space, each day, regardless of what it has in store, what disappointments are there, is to listen for God, look for God, try to hear God speaking to you through the devotionals, through the prayer, through scripture, 
through things you're listening to and watching, even as you enjoy the small things in different ways. This Advent, we're looking at Luke 1 and 2 in a sermon series we're called Awaiting the King, because in, in one way we're awaiting and Israel was awaiting the coming of the Messiah and the prophets looked for him. And of course, the angels announced that the king is coming, but it's Jesus, not what they expected. We await the coming of a king as well. Greater than any president or emperor or prime minister, we await the coming of the king of the universe, the one who will right all wrongs. That's where our hopes lie in this world. And so over the next six weeks, we're going to revisit a very familiar story. And as we do, read it. Read it again and again. Luke 1, Luke 2. Spend time in a verse or a section. And let the word of God in these timeless truths of how God brought about his son point you to what he wants to do in this world and in your life and in mine. As we enter into this series, a couple of things I wanted to look at is, is just thinking through a couple of the themes to have in your head over the next few weeks as we think about Luke 1 and 2. So if you were looking at the themes in Luke 1 and 2, one of the things that jumps out, especially in the Gospel of Luke, is that what we find in the Gospel of Luke is God acting in history. It is God stepping into the historical moment in the lives of real people. We get this right off the bat in our reading this morning in verse 5 of Luke chapter 1, where Luke writes, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. We get throughout the Luke 1 and 2 story, we get the names of kings, of the emperor, and of the eras in which they were existing. This is around 4 BC that this is happening. King Herod was over Judea, placed there by Mark Antony in Rome, and now there's a new Caesar in, uh, in Rome, but King Herod is still the king of this Judean region. And Zechariah is a priest, and this was a very priestly name who had a priestly function in the temple in Jerusalem, which was the case in that first century. We have kings, we have cities, we have dates, we have roles that were very well known in that first century. And what we get is not just some fairy tale, we get a story that is in history. And is the, rem the reminder that God acts in human lives. He acted in human history. God actually entered human history and human lives. And that's what the incarnation is about. It's not just about God giving some ideas. It's about God saying, I'm here. I care about what is happening in the world. I'm entering it and I will do so again. Another theme that we get throughout Luke 1 and 2 is the, the emptiness to fullness and the humble being exalted. It's the barren and the virgin who have a child. It's the, the ones who don't have anything that are chosen for salvation. It's the low and unlikely nature of the ones that God chooses. He chooses an old couple who are barren. He chooses a young girl, a teenager, and he chooses shepherds, outcasts in the society. He chooses foreigners to come and visit in Matthew. He gets people that are not part of the story as they should be, and he exalts them into places of chosenness for his story. Another thing that we get, and if you've ever looked at these passages and heard sermons on them, it, you know this, it, there's a lot of fear and doubt in Luke 1 and 2. If you were going to put it, you know, it, the heroes aren't very heroic. 
They seem to be pretty afraid, uncertain, doubting. They constantly are fearing the presence of God and his calling on their lives. They're uncertain and doubting that God would choose them and what he has in store. Zechariah does this. We certainly see this with Mary. And we get it with the shepherds who are deeply afraid. Who, me? What's really going on? That fear and that doubt is very present. And I think it's one of those things we need to remember as Christians because oftentimes Christians try to hide their fears and doubts or they don't allow them. Like you, you can't question things. But Luke 1 and 2 lets us know you can get things wrong. You can be uncertain. You can doubt, doubt God, doubt God's presence, and he still wants to work in you. It's that earnestness and openness to say, I, I'm not sure and I'm trying to figure this out. And the last thing I want us to see in Luke 1 and 2 is that it is a series of promises and a lot of waiting. The word of God comes in the form of promises through the angel Gabriel and through the scriptures. The promises come to Zechariah and to Mary, and as we'll find out later on, to Simeon who waited in the temple to see the Messiah. But all of them must wait. Zechariah and his wife had decades without a child. In a culture that valued children, he had no child. And yet the Lord says, in late in his life, you're going to have a son. So he had waited and waited and waited. Decades of marriage, and they never had a child until the Lord gives them a son. Simeon, that we'll find out in, later in Luke 2, spent his whole life with this promise that he was holding on to that he would see the Messiah before he died year in and year out, holding on to that promise of God, waiting and waiting. Mary was probably just a teenage girl and she wasn't expecting a baby. So it wasn't like she was waiting around saying, when am I gonna have a child? But the Lord says, okay, you're gonna have a baby in nine months and nine months wasn't that long to wait. But the promise was not just that you're gonna have a son, but that he will be the savior of his people, the savior of the world. And for that, Mary had to wait. Her waiting involved over 30 years of watching Jesus grow up, treasuring who he was in her heart and the promises made to her about him. But the promises involved a lot of suffering and heartache and loss and her son dying on a cross before, before the promise was fulfilled that he would be the savior. Waiting and waiting and waiting. And of course, each of these characters Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph and, and Simeon, they were all pointing back to the story of Israel, of how God had chosen Israel, made promises to Israel, but they had to wait as well. You know, Abraham was told, you will have a, a son, you will be made a great nation and I will give you a land. But he had to wait decades, decades and decades till he was 100 years old before he had a son. And even then he never saw the fulfillment of the land of the nation. Joseph was in Egypt with a promise that he would be a prince over his brothers. For 20 years he was in prison waiting for God's promise to be fulfilled. King David was anointed as king as a teenager and 20 to 30 years later before he became king, waiting and waiting and waiting. The promises went to Israel that you will have a land, you will be a great nation. But for hundreds of years, the people of Israel asked, when Lord, when? And there they were in Egypt for hundreds of years as slaves, 
believing God was a deliverer. God was a God of promises. And yet, where was their deliverer? When, Lord? When? Later, after they made it out, had a land, and David was king, and then series of kings after him, Israel fell away from God, and the prophets came. Prophets like Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah, and they prophesied judgment and Israel being kicked out of their land and going into exile. But they also gave promises of hope, of a coming Messiah, of a return from exile, and the time when God himself would establish his kingdom with them. But when? Isaiah prophesied around 700 B.C., from 700 B.C. to the time of Malachi and 450 B.C. The prophets were both declaring judgment, but also the hope and longing of a Messiah, of a return, of God being present with them and establishing his kingdom, bringing salvation. And yet from the time of Malachi until this day and King Herod talking in Luke chapter 1 or the description of King Herod, 400 plus years had passed. And they were wondering when. When, Lord, when will this happen? When will the Messiah come? When will we return from exile in full? When will you establish your kingdom? And all they got was silence. I think this Advent, one of the things that we're being invited into, and invited into certainly in Luke chapter 1 and 2, is a waiting spirit. A waiting spirit, like the stories of Luke 1 and 2, like the story of the whole of the Old Testament. And a waiting spirit is very fitting with Advent. A waiting spirit is first hopeful. It is trusting and anticipatory. One of the things that a waiting spirit does in hoping is that it's looking for God and expecting God to act. Now, I've found that I, I am doing this better in my own life is looking for God, looking for God in the small things, in the beauty of a sunset or a cloudy day or some good food or a quiet moment or a fire in the fireplace, looking for God in those things, those sacramental life sort of things that we talked about last week. But one of the things I don't do is I have a hard time expecting God to act. Maybe it's just I, I'm cynical. I've been through enough. I've seen cancer. I've seen suffering. And I, I believe God is real, but I struggle with expecting God to act now in my life, this season, soon. But to be hopeful in our waiting is to look for God and to expect him to act. And it's clinging to God's promises and God's character. That's what the Psalms do. The psalmists again and again go back to God's promises and God's character. So whether it's praising God or complaining to God, it's saying this is who you are and who you said you would be. So act, hopefully trusting and anticipatory. To be hopeful in our waiting is to be faithful, like Zechariah and Elizabeth were. We read in verse 6 a description of this husband and wife, that they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. What's amazing is that they are older. We don't know exactly how old, but so let's say they've been married for 40 or 50 years. So they're older and they've never had children, and yet they continue to walk faithfully. They obey God faithfully, day in and day out, following the commands of God. They're described as righteous and upright. And they do so following the commands of God, obeying God, even though they don't get anything. They never have the child. 
They're not doing it to get something from God. They're doing it because they want to walk with God. To be a hopeful waiter is to be faithful in those small daily things of walking with God. Being hopeful doesn't mean that you ignore fear and doubt. Look, when life falls apart and things don't come about that you want to have happen, you don't just ignore them, pretend like they, they don't exist or try to gloss over them because you're a Christian and you're supposed to not be doubting. You confront them. You confront them and bring them to God. A waiting spirit is hopeful, clinging to God, but it's also open. Secondly, it is open. It is hopeful, it is open. A waiting spirit is honest with God. It's honest with God about our disappointments and our doubts and our fears. And that's, you know, essentially we get a, the bad side of Zechariah, this great and upright man in verse 18, but it's also his honesty and his openness before God that's amazing. In verse 18, Zechariah says to the angel when he's told you're going to have a son, how shall this, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife has advanced in years. In other words, this, this doesn't happen. I'm old. My wife is old. We're, she's barren. We, this isn't, how can this be, God? I, I don't get it. He brings his honesty before the Lord. And yet he also has humility before God. We see that again and again in these stories of the characters from Mary and Zechariah and Simeon and the shepherds and in the Gospel of Matthew, the, the story of the, the Magi or of Joseph himself, there's a humility before God. It's a humility to hand over what we don't know to God. I think one of our challenges is when we're waiting for something, we have a sense of how it should play out. We have a sense of what should happen and when it will happen. And so we, we bring our prayers before God in the same way, whether it's prayers for a job or for healing or getting into a college or for a girlfriend or whatever it is we want in life, right? We pray for it and we have an expectation on what it should look like, how it's going to happen and when. It's one of the challenges with a lot of um, the way that end times theology in certain Christian circles fixates on signs and dates, trying to solve what it'll look like, how it's going to play about. When God simply says, yes, it's going to happen, I am coming again, you don't need to know and nor, sh nor will you know the times or dates or how. Trust me. To do that involves humility though. We wanna control what the future looks like. So even the way we pray for things often is like, God, this is what I want, but in my head, I'm thinking this is how it should look, how it should play out. To be open with God is to relinquish control. It's to be open-handed with God about what we're waiting for. And so that means we need to desire God more than the thing we're waiting for. In verse 13, we read this phrase. It says, the angel of the Lord told Zechariah, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. What was Zechariah's prayer? Your prayer has been heard and your wife will bear a son and you shall name him John. You know, the, the initial reading of that is that his whole life or in this moment, he was praying for a son. We're barren, we've never had child, I, I want a son, he's praying for that. And probably that's a part of it. But 
how does God answer him through the angel? He doesn't just say you're going to have a son. He gives a specific calling on the son. The specific calling is read in verses 16 to 17. The son that you're going to bear, that you and Elizabeth will have, Zechariah, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. God was bringing a Messiah for Israel, and Zechariah's son was the prophet preceding the way. So it's possible that deep within Zechariah's prayers was also this longing for the things of God. Not just, I want a son, but I want God to redeem Israel. I want God to bring his Messiah. He wanted God and God's purposes. He was open to God's ways and God's timing. And I think that's what it is to have a waiting spirit that is open. It is to desire God more than the thing itself. It's to desire God so that you are open and hold open your future and what God will do and how and when. And in that sense, waiting is hard. Being open with God, humble, honest, and open-handed with God, desiring his purposes is really hard. And it involves, lastly, patience. A waiting spirit involves patience. This, of course, this is sort of obvious, right? But that means that um, when we say patient, it means not being passive. I think there's a sense in which patient means you kind of just sit around and, and, and bite your tongue and don't say anything and just sort of wait um, or ignore or forget what's going to happen. Like if you're waiting for something, to be patient doesn't mean you're passive. A little kid is not passively waiting for Christmas. They're actively waiting for Christmas with Christmas lists and checking around the house and looking forward to movies together and the cookies that you guys bake. It's, they're not passively waiting. They're also not very patient. But we have to remember too, there's a difference, the, the way that we think about if we were gonna define impatience, impatience is always looking for the thing itself, the thing hoped for. Impatience is being fixated on the job. We're fixated on finding a wife. We're fixated on getting a new house. We're fixated on trying to be happy and find happiness. And as a result, impatience is always looking for it elsewhere. You can never be in the moment and present where you are. To be impatient is always to look somewhere else. It's to focus out there and can never be content here. Patience that waits for the Lord, that waiting spirit, has sustained focus. It is attentive and alert, looking for God, looking for God everywhere. Not looking for the thing, just for God. And this is not natural. We need to cultivate this. Zechariah and Elizabeth had a life circumstance of disappointment. In a culture that valued children above everything else, they didn't have it year in and year out. And when you have disappointment and loss and things aren't the way you want them in life, what can happen is you can either, that, that disappointment and that loss can cause you to push away from God and reject him, or as it was the case in Zechariah and Elizabeth, be an instance or a season where that barrenness was actually cultivating a sustained focus on God. They had to turn away from this desire for a child and turn towards God and find their satisfaction in him day in and day out. 
that sustained focus to look towards God, not just to get something, but just to be with God, the one who would satisfy their desires. And in that sense, the invitation to waiting spirit is to be present in the moment, to be present in the moment in which we are in. And that's going to be hard this season. We're in the middle of a coronavirus pandemic, and we just want it to be over, right? Christmas isn't going to be the same. So maybe we're looking forward to Christmas, but then we realize it's not going to be quite the same. But a waiting spirit says, don't look ahead. Be present right now, today, with the people that you're with or your aloneness, with whatever you're eating, whatever you're reading, whatever you're thinking and walking, where you're sitting. Be present, fully present in the moment and look for God. So this Advent, this Advent and Christmas season, looking back at last week, the invitation is to pray and think deeper and learn how to cultivate that waiting spirit. A waiting spirit is not, we don't have a waiting spirit because God shows up for those who are waiting. If you, if you can create that perfect waiting spirit, God will give you what you're waiting for, what you really want in life. Rather, more often, I think you'll find, I've found, that we find God in the waiting. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this Christmas, we want to have Christmas as it always is. But most likely that will not be the case. So lead us by your Spirit to wait attentively to you, to be patient and open and hopeful, looking for you in the moment, seeking you, deepening our longing for you, and putting all of our hopes now and in the future in you. Amen.